All right, let's go Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, it, it's, an, it's a minor prophet, so I'm going to give you an extra second. All right, Micah chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you can call yours, uh, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is really, really simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but uh, the top of the mountain for all the important things that God uses his scriptures for is to reveal himself to his people. And so um, the way to, to, to press into knowing God better is to chase after knowing him in the place where he's revealed his character, revealed his personality, revealed who he is, uh, and he desires for you to know him. So if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that physical one home. It'll be the best part of my day. Have you found Micah yet? It's between Jonah and Nahum, which I'm sure helps you a ton. Um, go ahead and ask a neighbor if you need some help. Uh, so when, when I started thinking through... Um, and I started thinking through how, what in the world I could possibly stand up here in front of you after our world has fallen apart and preach. Um, I'll be honest with you, I struggled for a while. Does that shock you? Um, I, I might have even tried to get out of preaching this week. <laughs> um, and Jeff has been a good friend to me. I hate to break it to you, but... Um, I'm not as filled with bravado as a lot of y'all think that I am. Um, I, I was intimidated by this morning. About a month ago, uh, I had this grand plan rolling around in the back of my head uh, of kicking off a massive, and when I say massive, I mean massive, series through the book of Matthew. All right? Mapping it all out is at least 80 weeks and so when you split it up with all of our stuff, we're talking like a three-year series. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew starts with the Christmas narrative. So what better time to start the book of Matthew than Christmas, right? And I had this giant plan for this amazing series, and then life kicked me in the teeth. You ever been there? My grand plan was taken from me. Because a, a giant Christmas kickoff kind of feels unwelcome right now. So the book of Matthew is on pause for the moment. Maybe we'll get to it in January. We'll see what, what God does. I don't know if you've had the same experience I've had the last few weeks, um, but I find the list of things that have been robbed from us to be far longer than I ever imagined it would be. Big things, and even a bunch of ankle biter small things, things that were on my radar and things that just kind of crept up unannounced. And hear me clearly, uh, I would never in a million years trade putting a stop to harm for avoiding all the fallout for putting a stop to harm. I hope you wouldn't trade that either because I'd never make that trade. We did exactly what we needed to do to rush in and help some people who desperately needed our help. And we don't apologize for that. But man... Don't, don't you sometimes wish that we lived in a world where doing the right thing always won you attaboys and accolades? I find myself wishing that this week. Doing the right thing would sure feel a lot easier in those moments, wouldn't it? But the unfortunate reality of the sin-broken world that we find ourselves living in is that that doesn't always happen. The, the fallout of sin tends to carry on long after the come-to-Jesus moment. 
There are earthly consequences that continue to build and continue to play out. And I struggled for days to figure out how to stand in front of y'all and preach something. And then Terry Dorsett got up here last week and showed us that the incarnation, the promise of the coming Messiah, really does break through the darkest moments for God's people. He pointed us to the prophet Isaiah, to the faithful remnant as a wicked king ascended to the throne. And on the darkest of days, when everything was falling apart by the actions of someone else, the promise was given, and the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. For most of the people around us this Christmas season, they're oblivious to the chaos. They don't see it. They don't feel it. They, they, may, they may have seen our name in the news, maybe even had some kind of reaction to it. Some of those reactions were kind. Many of them have not been. But it was one more news article in a busy week for them. Their December is filled with the same kind of stuff that our Decembers were all filled with this time last year. A calendar bursting at the seams with holiday parties and a ramping kind of self-inflicted pressure to outdo last year's gift. And for me at least, a rapidly decreasing tolerance for all Mariah Carey music. (laughs) Am I the only one that's over all I want for Christmas is you before the end of the first verse? Okay, just checking. Listen, maybe you're still fighting for some normalcy this year. For your family, for your business, for whatever. And man, I truly hope you're successful. In fact, I think there's a lot of health in that fight. We're trying to do the same thing in my house. But then maybe, I don't know, maybe, um, maybe there's a whole lot of weirdness around normal for you right now. And some of the normal things just feel off or empty, or unwelcome, or or maybe a little tone deaf at the moment. Maybe you find yourself in a moment when the chaos is currently drowning out all of the normal things that you're trying so desperately to cling to. This morning, I want us to look at something that I hope will break through that chaos and actually bring you peace. It's found in the book of Micah. Micah is one of the minor prophets. He's writing about the same time period as what we looked at last week with Isaiah. He's not not a direct contemporary with Isaiah. There's there's some overlap there. Micah is prophesying just maybe a generation later. So we're talking 700 and 720-ish years before the birth of Jesus instead of uh, Isaiah's kind of 720 to 750, uh, depending on how you count some things. And so there's a little bit of shift. But even with that little bit of shift, um, the historical realities in play are mostly the same, all right? God's people are split into two kingdoms. You got Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And if you've been around for any length of time at all, you've heard me talk about kind of the the main difference between those two kingdoms. It's not that there's bad kingdom and good kingdom. It's that Judah's descent into chaos, Judah's descent into uh, terrible things is just a little bit slower than Israel's because Judah did a better job from time to time coming back in repentance, 
Right? That's the main distinction between them. Uh, for the most part, uh, there is a faithful remnant in both. And Israel and Judah are both filled, though, with sinful people and sinful kings. And Judah does a, a better job of uh, uh, kind of fixing the ship from time to time. They have a, a pretty good king sit on the throne every once in a while for a season. And, but, so their downward spiral is just slower than Israel's. It lasts a couple hundred years longer than they do. But both kingdoms are a mess. An absolute mess. And so it's about the time of Micah's writing that the northern kingdom of Israel is coming to an end. The Assyrian Empire is going to come through in about 721 BC and just wipe them off the map. And God used Micah to prophesy, one, Israel's immediate destruction at the hands of Assyria. But two, also, Judah's farther away, but still very, very uh, certain destruction at the hands of another empire, the Babylonians. But Micah's got a third thing to talk about. He also wants to point them to what comes after that destruction. And while Isaiah is very poetic in his allusions, he paints these elaborate word pictures about a, a new tree growing, uh, a shoot growing up out of the stump of Jesse. Lovely poetry. Micah's more a punchy-in-the-nose kind of guy. He just goes right head into it. Uh, in chapter 1, immediately after Micah introduces himself, tells him where he's from, he says this in the second verse of the letter. It says, Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Verse 3, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire the waters poured down a steep place Micah's a lovely sounding guy in chapter 3 he turns the volume up even more and he says this in verse 9 he says hear this you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity its heads give judgment for a bribe its priests teach for a price its prophets practice divination for money yet they lean on the Lord and say is not the Lord in the midst of us no disaster shall come upon us verse 12 therefore because of you you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Listen, if you happen to be new to the Bible, you never read the Old Testament for yourself, here's something you need to understand. It's incredibly important. All right? If you don't understand this, you don't understand the God of the Bible. Our God despises, and the word is despises, he despises the outward actions of worship and public piety whenever his people are not equally committed to the internal actions of personal righteousness. He hates it. He hates it. He does not simply sit back and overlook injustice. He promises judgment on his people for it. And just like last week, this injustice is not... It's not coming from the remnant. It's coming from the leaders of his people. Political leaders, spiritual leaders, and just like last week, this is the scene for one of the greatest messianic promises in the Old Testament. I'm of the opinion that chapter 5 is Micah's mountaintop moment. Let's look at it together. Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. 
He says this. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Let's call time out there. So there's no pretty way of getting out of that promise. There's there's nothing that can explain it away, dismiss it off. There's nothing that can be said to, to soften the blow there. Through Micah, God tells his people that the warring nations are headed their way. Have a great holiday. He says, says, go ahead and muster your troops. Get everybody ready because the army is on your doorstep. They're coming. But despite the call to get ready, no amount of preparation is ever actually going to get them ready. It's not going to help them. But, But why? Well, for starters, the Hebrew there, there's kind of a play on words between muster your troops and O daughter of troops. Most scholars seem to suggest that it's kind of already hinting that the troops aren't there to muster. They're not available. You can send out the call, but they will not respond. But secondly, and I think more importantly, regardless of how prepared they are, we're told that those coming against them will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So what's that about? Well, Mike is talking about the king. It would have been common in those days for a conquering nation to come in and make a show of the king they conquered humiliate them this is what you get for losing to us kind of deal and the picture that we're given here in verse one guys it's not just a failure to win some military battle off in some far off battlefield No, the picture here is that the enemy will overwhelm them and celebrate their victory in their own streets. Amongst them. The promise from Micah here is that no one, faithful remnant included, will escape the defeat. The judgment of God that's coming at the hands of a conquering empire, it will be decisive. God's people won't just watch their kingdom fall. They will watch it be taken apart and used for sport. I think we're all on the same page. We're talking about a truly dark day. It's a truly dark day. And I think that that's probably an earth-shaking reality for a lot of people. There's this weird assumption buried in a lot of Christian folks that, that the faithful are supposed to always escape the pain. But not only does that assumption ignore pretty much all of people's normal everyday experiences but it also ignores a really long list of stories in the bible that's not how things play out for god's people most of the time there are faithful and unfaithful people in pretty much every story of the bible on the receiving end of pain so what then is the biblical understanding of how the faithful will experience the dark day? Like, like what, what do the remnant get when everything is falling apart? How should we see it? The promise is that God is present both during and after the dark day. That he's there. That he's near to them. And that he will not forsake them. Last week, it was the announcement of Emmanuel, God with us. 
The promise through Isaiah was that God would draw nearer and nearer to his people, that he would put on flesh and actually dwell among them through the son of a virgin. Okay, but, but where's, that, where's that promise this week? Well, the promise is found in verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. All right, so I'm going to keep saying this until you all finally believe me, but I'm of the opinion that the best verses in the Bible all start with the word but. All right? Some of y'all have already picked up on that. Some of y'all have got a lot more work to do, but it's true. The best verses in the Bible start with the word but. The nations of Israel and Judah rightly deserve what's coming down the pipe for their sin. It's owed to them. They have dug their hole deeper and deeper and deeper for generations. They've not only embraced their sin, they've slapped a spiritualized justification on top of their sin. They're a train wreck. They're a dumpster fire. And even still, even still, their sin is not the end of their story. God is not done working for their good. And so just as Micah points to their coming judgment, a judgment rightly earned by them, he also points to what God is doing through and beyond that judgment. He says that I'm going to raise up for you another ruler. This one won't be like those wicked kings that keep sitting on your throne. No, this, this, this king will be from of old. He's of ancient days. And he will come from a place that you don't expect your kings to be coming from right now. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now, usually when Bethlehem is brought up when speaking of you know, messianic prophecies, speaking about Jesus, whether it's the birth narrative or you know, prophecies in the Old Testament and all that kind of stuff, uh, usually when talking about Bethlehem, uh, you, teachers will spend a lot of time uh, kind of playing up and drawing attention to the, the, the fact that Bethlehem is small and, and kind of isolated and mostly overlooked. And I've done the exact same thing when preaching those texts, including preaching this text. And part of that is justified because Micah himself just called it too little to be among the clans. Micah points out how small and overlooked it is. Bethlehem truly is tiny in the shadow of mighty Jerusalem. It is overlooked. Correct. But it's also got some really, 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 really important history that all of Micah's audience would have immediately keyed in on. Immediately understood. They've got exactly one king who's come from Bethlehem. One. Just one king who's come from Bethlehem. For hundreds of years, all of their other kings grew up in Jerusalem. David was the guy who established Jerusalem as the capital of the unified kingdom, the golden age for God's people, the, the age that all the faithful Jews running around there desperately wished that they could get back to, return to, restore the glory of. David was the king that God promised would one day he would give him an eternal heir to sit on his throne forever. And so to hear another promise that God uh, from God that an ancient king will emerge from the same place that David did, it's got to sound to Micah's audience like a giant reset. 
He points back to what was probably the deepest longing in the hearts and the minds of the faithful. And he says, hey, hey, listen, listen, listen. I know, I get it. I know that everything around you is dark right now. I see it. I know how painful it is for you. I know how chaotic things are. But God has not forgotten what he has promised to you. The perfect and eternal king is still on his way. He's coming. Yes, there are storm clouds on the horizon. The truth, the honest truth, is that that storm is going to tear you up. It's going to be the worst storm you've ever experienced. It's going to tear you apart. But after that storm, oh, hear the word of the Lord, you remnant. After that storm, the sun will rise. That's not a maybe. I have already put everything into motion for you. I have not broken my promise to you. I am still faithful. But this ancient king from David's hometown will not merely be a reset for the kingdom, a reset for God's people. He will not merely be some eternal king on an eternal throne. Look at verse 3 because Micah keeps going. He says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Verse 4, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. All right, so as the dark day of wrath draws closer and closer and closer, it's right on their doorstep. The promise that, God's make to, that God makes to his people is not, hey, don't worry because I never let, let you face the pain. My people don't do dark days. That's not how we roll here. No, 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 the promise is, I have a wonderful plan for you on the other side of that dark day. I have not forsaken you. I am here with you now, and I will be with you then. He says that they will be given up until the time when the the labor pains are over. I cannot speak intelligently about labor pains, nor am I brave enough to try. All right? Um... I've only ever been an outside observer. It would be really unwise for me to act like I know anything about him. Right? But even as an outside observer, even as the guy who's only been around and in the room and not trying to get in the way, I know that labor pains are temporary. I'm at least smart enough to, to say that out loud. They're temporary. In the moment, they feel like they're the whole world. They feel like they're the only thing that matters or is ever going to matter, but they're only temporary. And immediately following the labor pains, if you've been in that room, you know it's, it's an otherworldly explosion of joy. Labor pains must come before the new child arrives, but when that child does arrive, the labor pains are overwhelmed by something new, something better, something lovely. Something that somehow, in a way that's really, really hard to try and articulate, makes the labor pains somehow worth it. Micah tells his audience, that this new child will come with more than just some ancient Davidic pedigree. Now, that's not, not important, but he's bringing more in the toolbox than just that. He says that he will also stand as the strong shepherd, that majesty will belong to him, and that because of his strength and because of his majesty, his people shall dwell secure. 
Churches all over the place are putting on Christmas plays this month. Uh, Matt Hasty, he had to rush off to his church this morning. Tonight, they've got a Christmas play. All right? Shepherds and everything. Shepherds are never the main characters of the show, though. You usually fill those roles with kids and men who won't commit to a speaking part. Um, but we tend to have this romantic idea of shepherds in our culture, right? You know, they're the ones that, that care tenderly for the sheep and their hair is nice and pretty and they, they, they guide them to still waters and they to plush green grass. They make sure that they lay down in a safe place at night. Right? Now, now, all of those things are certainly true about shepherds. They do do those things. But that mental picture tends to think of sheep as pets, not livestock. The main purpose, the chief reason that somebody is paying a shepherd to hang out with the sheep is to protect the investment from threats, from thieves and from predators. Sheep are slow and they're really delicious. In a world full of lions and wolves and bad guys, there's a lot of protecting that needs to be done for some sheep. So while there's certainly a tenderness of the shepherd towards his sheep, no one's doubting that. There is also, at the same time, a hardening to those who would seek the sheep harm. Shepherds carry rods and big sticks and they know their way around a sling. What Micah calls... This coming king, a strong shepherd, he ain't talking about his gentleness. He ain't talking about his tender care for the sheep. Security flows out of the character and the competency of the good shepherd. His sheep are secure because the shepherd is strong. They dwell securely because the shepherd brings more to the table than just gentleness. No enemy can overwhelm them because the shepherd is on duty. But what if I told you, what if I told you that security is actually the least of his good gifts to his people? Because there's such a thing as a cold security. There's such a thing as an isolated and unloving security. The beginning of verse 5 reframes what the security of the good shepherd actually looks like. Micah says, and he shall be their peace. Church, for the follower of Jesus, peace is not some abstract concept, and even, even though a lot of people would probably try to define it this way, neither is it just simply some absence of conflict in your life. Now see, according to the Bible, according to the prophet Micah, peace has a name. Peace has a name. He doesn't say that this promised eternal shepherd king will bring peace to his people. No, he says that this promised eternal shepherd king will be their peace. It'll actually be their peace. His presence with them is what will quiet every fear. His presence will be what calms their souls. His presence will be the steadying force that gets them through the darkest of days. His presence will not only be their anchor, but also their greatest prize. Listen, maybe, I don't know, maybe you've been surrounded by a bunch of chaos you didn't ask for this Christmas. Same. Same, man. And maybe, maybe you feel like you've been robbed of both big things and little things. Same. 
And maybe you find yourself wondering if fighting for normal is even allowed right now. Same. But hear the prophet Micah this morning. The Messiah King that we celebrate each Christmas does not prevent the chaos we create for ourselves. He doesn't. He hasn't promised that. But he has promised to be near his people through that chaos and on the other side of that chaos. And if you trust him, and that's a big if, don't hear more than that in, in that than, than you're supposed to. If you trust him, he will be your peace regardless of how dark the day actually is. So do you trust him? Are you in a place where you're clinging to him when everything else is failing you? Same. So what do we, what do, we do with this stuff, huh? How can we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, listen, you can respond by meeting him. By meeting this good king. The Bible teaches that all people by default are separated relationally from God because of their sin. That we are all owed the just and right punishment for that sin. The Bible calls that punishment hell. But the Bible also teaches at the very same time, teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with an incredibly great love, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that he makes us alive through the grace of Christ. How does he do such a thing? The promised eternal shepherd king did finally step onto the scene in the person and work of Jesus. It may come 700-ish years after Micah's promise, but he showed up. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. Emmanuel, they called him. He lived the sinless life that you and I, we aren't able to live. And he died on the cross as a sacrifice for, uh, in place to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now, as the king who conquered all the things he promised to conquer, He calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. I'd love to be helpful to you. Normally we sing another song, but Matt had to go to his own church this morning. We can sit and talk. And I'd love to sit with you and talk. But what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How how, how do we respond? the same way we do every single week, by repenting of sin and by leaning into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I, and I think our response probably ought to take the shape of not trying to control everything. This is a place where we can be honest. I've been guilty of that this week. Trying to control all the things for fear of what might happen if I don't hold everything close to the chest. But God has not called me to be the strong shepherd bringing peace in the middle of chaos. That's not my job. I'm not the hero of his story. He's called me instead to find my rest in his goodness, to find security in his character. He's called me to see and to savor, even on the darkest of days, the majesty of the name of the Lord. So I'm going to pray, and if you want to talk, I'm, I'm here to talk.
Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way today. Um, whether that's by formally joining our church family, or maybe it's by being obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe it's time to say yes to his call to take the gospel somewhere far away from here. I don't know. It's a weird season. But listen, our God's big enough to do what he wants when he wants. He can call you even now. Even in the middle of the dark day. But whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a promise buried in the minor prophets. The chaos we create in this world is sometimes created by us and sometimes created by others and we're just at the the mercy of the the army raging outside the gate. And you have not promised to protect us from the pain. But you have promised to be near us and to be the strong shepherd. To be the one that we find our rest and security in even as the wall comes crashing down. Take out of our hands all of our efforts to control and help us cling to you instead. Whether we feel overwhelmed by the chaos right now or it's just on the fringe, show your goodness by being near. We love you. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you call them into your kingdom today? Open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.